Welcome to Off Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. What motivates a teacher to quit teaching? Today I speak with Joel Hammond, who taught for over a decade in both public and private schools and was on track to earning a six-figure salary with full benefits. When he left, he stopped. He couldn't take it anymore. I interviewed Joel about what motivated his decision, about what he loved about teaching, about what really frustrated him. Joel is one of the co-founders of The Learning Cooperatives, a series of uh, centers based on the North Star model in the New Jersey and Pennsylvania area. And I will actually be speaking at one of The Learning Cooperatives this fall on my fall speaking road tour. And I've got some new dates up on my homepage, blakebowles.com, which I've also redesigned a bit. So please go check them out there. And if you are in the Midwest or the Northeast or the Southeast, I might be speaking near you this fall. Without further ado, I bring you Joel. My guest today is Joel Hammond, the co-founder of Princeton Learning Cooperative and the author of the Teacher Liberation Handbook. And the subtitle of that book is How to Leave School and Create a Place Where You and Young People Can Thrive. Welcome, Joel. Thanks, Blake. So we've talked a lot in this podcast about young people thriving in school. Uh, why, why do you write a book about where teachers can thrive? Isn't teaching a job? Is thriving really part of the job description? Shouldn't you just do your job as a teacher? <laughs> well, I, I think everyone should try to thrive at their job. Um, okay, okay, granted, yes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, th- that's to be honest. I mean, we, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about um, sort of young people in school, and, and you know, it might not be going well for them. Uh, I, you know, like I say in the book, you just start asking around to teachers, and you'll find that there's a there's a, a large number of them that are also, you know, unhappy with with sort of the. The situation they find themselves in schools, um, and so you know that was part of the reason for writing the book, like just getting it out there so that people know that there's another option, just like you know young people know that there's another option um, besides school. Mm-hmm. And uh, are there other books about uh, alternatives for teachers? Is there anything that you read before you decided you needed to write this book? No, I'm, not that I know of. There probably are. I didn't. I didn't do much research. <laughs> okay. And, and you're the co-founder of Princeton Learning Cooperative in Princeton, New Jersey, but you are also the co-founder of uh, a small empire of learning cooperatives in that area. <laughs> can you can you uh, please elucidate? Sure. A very small empire. Uh, yes. Yeah, so we, uh, we started the Princeton Learning Cooperative uh, back in 2010. Uh, and then we um, just realized that, you know, that there's, there's opportunity for this in, in lots of different places. And so then we started a second center uh, called the Bucks Learning Cooperative in Bucks County. Pennsylvania. And then this past fall, uh, we started one called the Raritan Learning Cooperative in Flemington, New Jersey. Okay. So anyone in the greater New Jersey, Pennsylvania bordering areas, uh, there are learning cooperatives waiting for you there. Indeed. Uh, More by the the week, it seems. Um, (laughs) Cool. Uh, We're going to talk about being a teacher and the the frustrations that can come with that and other paths that you can take if you Mm -hmm. like teaching, but don't find that you fit into the system. So, uh, Joel, start by telling us what is your teaching background? What's your professional background? Yeah, sure. I was, uh, uh, you know, went to college for secondary education and social studies. So I was a, I was a history and you know, kind of all-purpose social studies teacher for uh, eleven years. Um, uh, most recently, in in just a big suburban, 
you know, public school uh, outside of Philadelphia. And, you know, like, uh, like I mentioned in the book, you know, I, I come from a big family of teachers. Like my dad is a teacher. My wife is still a teacher, um, you know, in the, in the school, actually, I used to teach at. Uh, so, you know, I've been in that world uh, pretty much my whole life. How old are you now, Joel? Uh, I'm 40. All right. And what year did you quit teaching? Uh, it was 2011, I believe. Okay. Um, in the book, you wrote that uh, if you could only reach one or two students, and you were talking about a, a current issues class that you were teaching to seniors, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you had 20 students. That sounds pretty nice, only 20 students in a class. Yeah. But, but you said that only maybe one or two of those students would actually show up if the whole thing was voluntary. They weren't doing it for credit, for any other sort of extrinsic reward. Yeah. Um, so w- what's the problem with that? Why, if you can reach just one or two students, isn't it worth it, Joel? Uh, it, I mean, sure, it is. I mean, the you know, for for my purposes, what I was interested in doing, um, you know, of course, whenever you can reach anyone, that that's great. But I just I felt like that was like, you know, like a five or ten percent success rate was just too low of a. <laughs> Yeah, that's not what yeah, I was. In, in what, what field would a five percent success rate be acceptable? Yeah, uh, not even in baseball, many. right? You know, like thirty <laughs> percent. You know, batting average is good, but um, yeah, yeah. I just didn't. Um, you know, and I think that's that's one of those things. Um, you know, sort of in the mythology of teaching, right? It's like if I can just reach one kid. You know, it makes it all worth it. And you know, the the way I looked at it was just there were so many. Um, young people I worked with, you know, so if I had 120 kids in my classes each year, you know, I was reaching 10 of them. Like, I don't know. It just didn't, didn't feel like the, the way that I wanted to spend my time and, and certainly not the, um, you know, why I went into teaching um, in the first place. And so, you know, I just, you know, that was sort of what got me started looking for like other alternatives. Like, are there other ways, you know, to work with young people where, uh, you know, the impact that you're going to have for the kids that you're working with is just, is just much larger. Um, and, uh, it's kind of how I got to where I am today. And you share some really illuminating stories in the book. And I think the one that you lead with was the most powerful for me. You're describing an academically underperforming 13-year-old boy who comes into this room and there are there's you and there's other teachers and there's the counselor and some other administrators and their parents are there and and they're all just like surrounding this kid and and you wrote that you could see the indifference or the shame or the defiance rising depending on the student yeah. um, and it sounds like you really didn't like these meetings but you were there anyways like how much of this kind of stuff happened for you as a teacher? Was that a rare occurrence or were these kinds of meetings where you felt bad afterwards for doing what you did more common? Well, these, these were routine meetings. Um, we'd, you know, we'd have a couple of them a year, I would imagine. Um, you know, and the way that the, the middle school that I taught in was set up, you know, we had teams, right? So there was a social studies, science, math, and English teacher all on the same team, and we would share the same group of 120 kids or whatever it was. Um, and so, you know, when, when, you know, and that was the idea of the team concept is that, we, you know, there's four adults paying attention. And if a kid was not doing well across the whole, the whole range, then, you know, we could have interventions. And, and so we would have these, these kind of meetings fairly regularly. Um, and, I mean, the, the other thing I'll, I'll point out about this is, uh, you know, that those meetings, um, you know, I, I probably was the only one thinking that in that meeting, right? Um, you know, because I think a lot of times that 
that desire, um, you know, the meeting was set up, you know, as a desire to help young people, right? Like this, this, you know, it's not going well for this. What can we do? We need to get everyone on the same page. Um, and so, you know, I just, you know, my, my own just personal take on it was just that this was not, you know, particularly helpful. I, you know, I never saw it really improve, you know, the situation for these kids. Um, because, you know, and, and again, you know, going back to sort of the, the school mentality, and again, this is not to bash, you know, public schools, but, you know, if it's not going well for a kid, you know, the, the first place to, to look for the problem is always with the kid, right? It's not like the way that we have things set up is the problem. And so, mm -hmm. you know, those, those, those meetings were an attempt to figure out what's wrong with this kid. And, you know, I'm just sitting there thinking, well, maybe, you know, it's everything else, <laughs> you know, and, and so, you know, what were we putting this family through? What were we putting this kid through when, you know, they're, they probably would, would thrive under other circumstances. Um, and so, you know, that it was just one of those, one of those things that stood out for my time teaching where it just became clear to me that, um, you know, there, you know, I needed to do something else. And you were teaching in one fashion or another for a decade. So what was the trajectory of, of your thoughts? When did you start having these thoughts of maybe it's not the kid, it's the system? Did, did you go in thinking these thoughts from the very beginning? Uh, no, I, I went in very, you know, like I say in the book, very, uh, you know, idealistic and, you know, believed in the, in the power of traditional schools to really, you know, change the world, you know, change young people's lives and change the world. Um, you know, there had been, uh, you know, sort of inklings of things, um, you know, previous to that, like I had, uh, you know, when I was in college, I had gotten into some kind of leftist sort of politics and uh, started reading some like youth liberation sort of things. And that's how I came across Grace's book, uh, Teenage Liberation Handbook, um, you know, back right when I had graduated from, from college. So I hadn't even started teaching yet. Um, and I kind of read it and it was just sort of interesting, but I didn't you know, obviously act on it. I still, you know, went into teaching. Um, and it was really, you know, the, after those first couple of years where, you know, from a teaching standpoint, it was, you know, ideal. Uh, you know, I was teaching in an all girls private Catholic school outside of Philadelphia. There was zero, you know, zero, uh, discipline problems. You know, um, they, they just let me teach whatever I wanted. There's no curriculum. They're just like, you should do something on us history and government. So we threw out all the textbooks. I mean, it was, it was, you know, from a from a teaching perspective, it was it was really wonderful. That sounds like teacher liberation, right there. Yeah, yeah. But even with all that, you know, it was, uh, you know, the first couple of years, um, you know, it's an exciting thing. You're working for the first time, making money for the first time, and you know, you're you know just full of energy. But you know, it became apparent, like even with all the restrictions, um, typical restrictions on teachers taken away. Uh, you know, kids still looked at it as just something they had to do, right? It wasn't, again, it, you know, I was trying to do all the innovative things I could think of. Um, and, you know, if the kids weren't required to be in that class, how many would have shown up? Not many, right? Um, and so it really started getting me to sort of question what I was doing, you know? Um, and, and so the, the, the evolution of my thinking around school really started there. Um, and then, you know, when I moved over to the, to the public schools, um, you know, just sort of accelerated. I found out about uh, North Star, um, which I'm sure we'll, we'll mention as we go along. Um, it would have been like 2007, uh, you know, and I had left teaching by 2011. Um, so, it, yeah, and I, I had really not known anything about, you know, unschooling or self-directed education, um, 
growing up or in my teaching career. It was all very traditional. Uh, and so it really was like a revelation to me, like, oh my God, you can do this. And you know, that's, that's just sort of what I was drawn to. Mm-hmm. And we will talk about North Star and Liberated Learners uh, a lot in this episode. Mm-hmm. I want to focus for a moment on that that moment where you started doubting the system and what conversations you were having with other people, what conversations you were having with yourself. And uh, something that you bring up in the book is that you imagined yourself to be something like, you know, possibly like Robin Williams in the Dead Poets Society. And I, right. and I know that's an inspirational movie or Stand and Deliver with Jaime Escalante. You know, there's all these yeah. classic tales that of powerful teachers that with responsive students, even if they're, they're, they don't really respond in the beginning, everyone gets onto the same team. Mm-hmm. And these kids have these, these huge breakthroughs. Yeah. And, um, so it sounds like you were set up to have an experience like that, as good as any teacher can be set up. And, yeah. and so why didn't it happen? I'm not saying why didn't you, you know, become Robin Williams, but, but what was missing in the equation? Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there, there definitely were kids that, that got it, right? You know, that were, were on board. Um, you know, I, there's, there's still, you know, kids that I'm in touch with from, you know, the first year that I was a, a, a teacher, you know, who like, if you asked them, they would say, yeah, you know, Mr. Hammond's class, you know, changed my life, right? Um, but it was like five, right? And I, I'm not trying to downplay that, like it's not important. Um, but, you know, if you take that five compared to the hundred, um, you know, the, the weight of it um, for, the, for the vast majority of the kids that I was working with was just, you know, putting in their time. <clears throat> and, and so, you know, like I, I wanted, and also, you know, there's certain kind of like restrict, not restrictions, but, um, you know, it, it, there's certain narrow kind of concepts that, you know, like we're here to talk about, you know, X, um, and, you know, when, when we're like, you know, in Princeton Learning Cooperative or whatever, you know, there's, there's, I think better, more opportunities, better opportunities, um, to really impact kids' lives in a, in a bigger way and not just sort of an academic, um, kind of way as well. And, and I guess I was always sort of drawn, um, you know, to that aspect of it as well. Um, you know, so if, if a kid doesn't want to talk about U.S. history, great. I don't, I don't need to talk to him about U.S. history. I don't need to force him to do that. We can talk about these other things that, you know, that might be more important to his life and, and their trajectory or whatever it is. So, you know, it's, it, there's a certain flexibility um, uh, that comes with, uh, you know, sort of stepping out of the traditional system and still working with kids in the way that we do, um, which, you know, which I'm drawn to. I mean, and again, it's, it's somewhat personal. Like there's, there's lots of teachers. I don't want to, you know, my wife is still a teacher um, in the traditional system. And I have, a lot of my friends are teachers. You know, there, there are a lot of teachers who find real meaning um, and value in the work that they do. And it's not to, to downplay that. Um, it's just for me, um, you know, I, I guess I was just looking for something different. And did you find that you were able to build significant, meaningful relationships with your students outside of the classroom? I think that's another thing, an attractive idea that draws people into teaching. Maybe, you know, it's Dead Poet Society again, where they Mm -hmm. connect outside of the classroom environment. Um, Was that a reality for you? Uh, Once I left traditional teaching or when I was in school? (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. When you were still in school as a regular teacher? Uh, Yeah, I mean... you, I mean, I, there were certain, you know, kids that, that you would form 
like really serious, you know, deep relationships with. Um, but just the, the structure of it was made that somewhat challenging. Right. So, you know, I got eight periods, you know, 45 minutes with the kids, a hundred some kids, you know, it's, it's, there's a little bit of a sort of a conveyor belt kind of like marching through, um, you know, kind of, kind of thing. Uh, and so, you know, and then the time that you're not up there talking about us history, uh, you know, there's not a, a, a huge amount of sort of that just, I don't know, downtime. I don't know what you want to call it. Um, but just time where you can, can make connections with kids. Um, and, and so if you're not connecting with a kid through the course material, um, you know, there's not much else to do there. Right. Um, some teachers, you know, do. Um, but I, th I think it's, it's just much more um, difficult. Um, whereas, you know, Princeton Learning Cooperative, you know, the, the relationships that I have with kids, I mean, I, I do lead some classes, but that's a very, very small part of how I spend my time and my attention and focus. You know, the, the real, you know, crux of what we do, the real, I think, valuable thing is, you know, sort of the mentoring and, um, you know, the sort of the relationships that we that we form with with our members. Um, and it doesn't have to be just about, you know, U.S. history. It can be about, you know, everything or, you know, whatever, whatever, you know, their sort of experience or their sort of hopes and dreams. And you can connect with them with them on a much, you know, I, it seems to me deeper level. Um which is just really attractive to, to me um, mm -hmm. as someone who's you know, interested in working with young people. So what was your favorite thing about being a teacher, both in public and private school? Like when was it the, the best that it could get? Oh, well, sure. I mean, um, you know, in my younger days, I was probably a lot more idealistic and, uh, you know, so we, we would just do fun things. Um, you know, there was a certain, um, uh, you know, rebelliousness that I, I enjoyed, right? So like, yeah, we're gonna throw out the textbooks, like, of course, those things are dumb, right? We're gonna, <laughs> we're gonna like do this, this new and exciting way to do school. Um, you know, and that was, uh, you know, I kind of feel like I took that just about as far as the limits inside the system could go, right? You know, zero curriculum, we're just gonna do things that are interesting and we're gonna, you know, like, you know, really try to make it tailored to, to young people's lives and what they're, um, what they're interested in. And, and again, like I said, you know, that, that worked for some, but just over, over time, I just, you know, I, I guess I ran into maybe the limits of that, um, or at least the perceived limits that I had. Uh, and so that's when it, you know, like we would have, you know, uh, it was back in the day, uh, when like, um, there's a lot of, um, uh, sort of political activity around like, you know, sweatshop labor, if you remember like, you know, college movements to like get their, you know, apparel, you know, college sports apparel team, you know, companies yeah. to not, yeah. you know, if you remember all that kind of stuff. So, you know, we do like a sweatshop fashion show and like, you know, kids would come in with their, their clothes and they'd research, you know, the conditions under which, uh, you know, these were made and, and talk to the class a little bit about it. And we'd have like, you know, we did like a light show and had like a DJ in the back of the room and like people would do the catwalk. I mean, there was like, you know, it was, which was fun, but like, you know, I don't know. A lot of kids. That was the exception to the rule, I imagine. Yeah. And, and, and still, you know, people didn't necessarily care. It was just like, well, this is a social studies class. I guess I, I guess I'll do this. How many points is this worth? You know, it's just, mm. you know, I don't know. Someone who is starting a Liberated Learners Center on the West Coast um, recently wrote this about his decision to, uh, to quit teaching in the Willamette Valley in Oregon. Uh, 
Uh, he said that my official position was a teacher of social studies, similar to you, Joel, grades 7 to 12. And t But teaching is a small fraction of what I actually did. I mostly developed and supervised tasks that managed teens for 45 minutes. I attended meetings. I filled out paperwork. I dealt with discipline issues. And I had to deal with this professional development as a teacher. And, and then he makes the, this comment that... Uh, professional development for him turned out to be essentially the same experience that many kids have in school, uh, which I imagine meant it felt pointless and inane. Uh, <laughs> does this ring true for you? Like being a teacher, how much teaching did you actually do in compared to, comparison to all this management of students and, and, and bureaucratic tasks? Yeah. I mean, I actually, I feel um, pretty fortunate, you know, especially at the, the first school I was at, um, you know, where there's no curriculum, no, there wasn't really a lot of oversight. Um, and I, you know, I've, I kind of wrapped up my teaching career right as uh, sort of the, um, the real heavy parts of like the no child left behind and like, uh, you know, so I, you lucky know, you. yeah, I, I sort of got, I watch what my wife has to go through in terms of the paperwork she needs to fill out. And it's brutal, right? I mean, it's just like, oh my God, I, there's no way I, I'm glad I started, you know, helped start the learning cooperatives when I did, because I would have had to just left and quit and did something else. Like I couldn't have, it was, it was bad. Uh, it is bad. Um, I feel bad for teachers who are still in, in the classrooms having to deal with that. Um, so I didn't, I didn't feel that as much. I mean, there, there was a lot of management, yeah, and grading, you know, whatever. Um, you know, the thing I think, you know, that struck home from, from that statement um, that I definitely felt strongly about was the, the professional development and just how pointless it is. Um, and it's exactly what, kids feel I would imagine when they're in school I, I don't I don't think adults uh, you know can you I don't think adults could almost put up with one day of what young people are required to do in high school right like sit there for seven hours listening to people you know and just think of your worst professional development conference you've ever gone to you're sitting in the conference room at the Holiday Inn just listen to somebody drone <laughs> on like seven but hours. But you can't leave. But you, you can't, can't leave. And if you, you can't even lose yourself in your smartphone, right? Yeah, you can't Because somebody will yell phone. at you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I, I, I couldn't do it. I, I can't do it, right? And so, you know, I don't know if this, maybe I shouldn't say this, but like, um, you know, when we were starting PLC, I was still teaching full time. And, you know, every professional development day for like two years, I just took off sick and worked <laughs> on PLC things. There's no way I couldn't couldn't stomach it. I couldn't sit through it anymore. Um, and that, you know, to be honest, I mean, that was one of the um, real uh, advantages, I think, of, you know, doing, you know, the learning cooperatives as compared to teaching. I, I thought that my, um, you know, kind of the, the skill development that I had as a teacher was pretty, pretty limited and narrow. Um, you know, when we, when we started the, the learning cooperatives, you know, I had zero um, knowledge or understanding of, you know, running a, a small nonprofit organization and all the things that that requires in terms of, you know, marketing and, you know, sort of business administration. And, you know, there's just a ton, there's a million things, you know, bookkeeping. I mean, there's all this stuff that you have to do to successfully run one of these centers. Um, and we just kind of, you know, basically have had an intensive, you know, uh, learning experience, you know, self-directed learning experience for the past, you know, uh, eight or nine years here. And it's, it's you know, completely transformed as a person, um, you know, from, from doing this work. Um, and so, you know, and I, you know, I've taught for 11 years and I, I couldn't have told you that I felt very much, very different at the end of those 11 years, right. I'm still kind of the same person. So, you know, just from a personal growth standpoint, 
um, you know, it's been, it's been a huge thing for me. So uh, we need to start talking about the learning cooperatives and North Star. And for those who are not familiar, can you give us the, the quickest of quick rundowns about uh, what North Star and what the learning cooperatives and what liberated learners are? Okay, so it's kind of two different things. So, you know, learning cooperatives in North Star um, is just the idea of supporting young people and families to, to use self-directed education, right? So you can leave school, um, really take on the responsibility for your own learning, uh, and then you have these, these centers and these communities uh, to support you in doing that. Right. So, uh, you know, there's there's sort of mentoring that happens. There's a physical space that you can come um, and be with other people. Uh, you know, there's classes, there's tutoring that goes on. There's help with college admissions. There's, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the, the real critical part of, you know, learning cooperatives in North Star is it's just that everything that is offered is voluntary. You know, there's there's no coercive um you know, part of that, of that system, you know, the attendance is optional. Um, you know, all of the classes and, and tutoring that's offered is, is optional. Um, it's really just making opportunities and resources available to kids and then helping them, you know, navigate not only the, the resources and opportunities at the center, but also out in the community. Um, that wasn't short, but that's, uh, that's kind hey, of the gist of it. No, was it. That was shorter than I was expecting. Well done. Oh, Thanks. Okay. There you go. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, and so liberated learners is sort of like the adult, um, kind of the adult version of that for, for teachers or other interested adults who want to, um, work with kids, but not in, in the traditional way. Um, and you know, like I said, if, if you go out and talk to, you know, a hundred teachers, uh, there's some huge percentage of them that would not be particularly thrilled uh, with the way the education is, is headed. Um, and so we get, you know, um, Ken did originally when North Star was the only sort of center uh, using this model around, uh, he would get all sorts of emails and calls from educators who found them and were like, oh my God, I want to do that. <laughs> like, help me do this. I was one of those people. Um, you know, I sent an email after I found out about North Star back in 2007, like, oh my God, Ken, I... I need to do this. How do you do this? Um, and so he was just, you know, kindly uh, helping people out here and there as part of his work with North Star. Um, and then after we started uh, the Princeton Learning Cooperative, uh, after a couple of years, you know, we keep getting these calls, and it was kind of like, uh, you know, Ken, we should really, we should really have an organization that is set up specifically to help, you know, adults create places like this in their communities. Um, because the, you know, the vision is just that, uh, you know, this way of learning, um, you know, might not be for everybody. Like, like I say in the book, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily chosen this, uh, when I was in high school. Um, but it should absolutely be an option, uh, for, for kids to have this kind of support, you know, at, in every community in the country. Right. So there needs to be thousands of these kinds of places. I completely agree that yeah. every small to medium sized city needs something like this. Oh Yeah. And so, so that was the, that's the vision of liberated learners, like, you know, help people start these things. Cause you know, like I say in the Ted talk, like just close your eyes and put your finger on the map, you know, anywhere you, anywhere you land, there's going to be kids, there's going to be teachers in the high yeah, school. They need this. Yeah. yeah who and, don't and like there it. will be teachers. There'll be potential people yeah. to found these and, and staff these centers. Yeah. So yeah. So liberated learners is, is, is supporting uh, adults, you know, consulting with adults to, to open these things and run them successfully, which is challenging to say the least. Um, and so it's it's you know that's sort of the mission of liberating learners. And then and then there's a sort of a network of 
of centers that we've helped open that, you know, provide mutual support and we, you know, um, do certain things together and, you know, so on and so forth. And how many Liberated Learner Centers are there now and what's the trajectory looking like? Um, well, let's see. I think there's maybe 13 at the moment. Um, and then we um, we're working with a, a couple of sort of new groups who are who are interested in founding one that they haven't haven't started yet. Actually, Ken's in the Philippines at the moment, uh, working with one of the groups. This first sort of off of North America uh, group that we've um, worked seriously with. Um, so uh, you know, so I mean, we've we've kind of added a couple each year uh, over the the time that we've been around. I mean. Awesome. It, the idea is, you know, if some, you know, um, you know, you know, Ken and I talk about, you know, like this is sort of like the next phase in, in the types of type of work we want to do. Um, so, you know, if you're going to get to a couple of thousands of these places, you know, hopefully the pace will accelerate. <laughs> more, more than a few a year. Yeah. 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 Or start extending your lifespan. Mm-hmm. Um, great. So people who want to learn more about Liberated Learners, which is the network for helping people start centers like these, can go to liberatedlearners.net. Correct. And you are the co-founder of Princeton Learning Cooperative and Bucks in Raritan, all within the New Jersey, Pennsylvania area. Yep. You sound busy. <laughs> Don't you have uh, a family? I do have a family. Um, yeah, it's... I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I still do other things. I don't know. <laughs> you have hobbies, I hope. I, I run. I got. I got. Actually, I'm doing a Spartan race on on Sunday, like an obstacle course race okay, with some of the kids. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, let's circle back to what makes a teacher mm-hmm. like even head down this path, and then mm-hmm. let's talk about how hard it is to start a learning center. Mm-hmm. Um, so. What is it when when a teacher starts questioning their path? Uh, of course, somebody might quit and they might go in a totally different direction. They might go sure. become an investment banker. They might go do who knows, you know, dog training. Um, but have you noticed in your conversations uh, any more common paths that teachers who are frustrated with the system uh, end up taking? Um, what, what are your options if you're a teacher who likes teaching and but doesn't like the system? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, that's what that's what I was confronted with. Um, you know, when when I was really got to the worst part, you know, worst time when I was teaching. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I mean, I did like working with kids. It was just in that way. I, di- I didn't know what the other options were. I mean, thank God I, I came across North Star. Um, you know, I... And it's it's some huge percentage. I don't. Maybe you've looked at this up more recently, but you know, like number of new teachers that leave the profession within the first five years, it's some huge percentage, right? Like fifty. I forget what I, it is. I'm not sure, but uh, yes. Yeah, it's some. You know, look it up. I mean, it's some really really big number. Um, you know, I don't I don't know what those a lot of those people do. I, I would imagine they go into other professions. Um, you know, you you can hear. You know, I've heard of people. You know, like starting tutoring businesses or, um, you know, other areas where you're working with kids, um, but just not in the traditional school. I mean, uh, you know, from, from my standpoint, I mean, I think the, you know, I was interested in working with kids, uh, in a, um, mutually consensual way, right? Like they wanted what I had and I wanted to work with them, right? That's pretty rare. Um, 
you know, to find mm-hmm. situations where, where that is the dominant sort of relationship with, with the kids. Um, you know, maybe summer camps, you know, maybe but some it, like, it, even yeah. in summer camps, parents will sign their kids up and just ship them off. Uh, right. A shocking amount of the time. Yeah. Particular summer camps, I guess. Right? Sure. Right. Um, you know, like that kind of stuff, you know, maybe like teaching karate lessons. I don't, you know, there's some, there's some of these things where, you know, people sign up voluntarily and, you know, have some, uh, you know, sort of independence. Um, but it's, it's not a lot. I mean, as a lot of people have pointed out, young people's lives are pretty well, uh, I don't know, directed for them. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, you know, that's why I started one of these because <laughs> it's like, I wanted to work with kids, but in this other way, and I didn't see a lot of other people doing it that way. Mm-hmm. Did you have anyone who told you that you were quitting too soon, that you were giving up and you just needed to stick it out a bit longer? Or did um, you tell yourself that? No, that thought never crossed my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, 11 years felt like I'd given it a real try. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of people tell me I shouldn't quit cause you're crazy. <laughs> you're giving up, you know, what essentially is like, uh, around, at least in this area, it's almost like uh, you hit the lottery in terms of teaching. Um, you know, the public schools around here, the, the district I was in, um, if I was still there, uh, you know, I'd be making over $100,000 a year with full benefits, almost free, and, you know, no chance of being fired unless I committed some sort of, like, major crime, you know. Um, and so, you know, to walk away from that, a lot of people were kind of like, wow, that's kind of crazy. Um, mm-hmm. but, you worked your whole life to get here. And now for some idealistic reason, you're, you're walking away from it. To, yeah. And, and, yeah. you know, and I had sort of lucked into that position, you know, we just knew some people who were part of that, that, um, school district. And, you know, when they were hiring for social studies teacher, you know, like the school district I was in, you know, for every open position, they get, you know, hundred applicants or something. Um, and so it was, um, it was, it was, you know, there's, there's people who have been uh, looking for a full-time job and just subbing for a decade, you know, in this area because it's, you know, people want to get into these districts so bad. Um, so walking away from that, um, I think was shocking to a lot of people. Like they didn't understand um, why. Now, if you were given advice to yourself uh, as an, a teacher who had just spent a few years in the system, two mm-hmm. or three years perhaps, would you have told yourself to to wait a little bit longer to, to see if it gets better, to see if, you know, a new classroom brings a, a new atmosphere. Um, and do you think that's reasonable advice? I, I'm getting towards the question here, Joel. Mm-hmm. When is it too soon for a teacher to quit teaching if they're really not enjoying it? Yeah, I, I think that probably would just be different for every person. I mean, you know, um, obviously, like my dad, I think, put in 40 41 years, 42 years or something before he retired. Right. Uh, I mean, he was pretty tired at the end of that. Um, you know, um, but you know, like for other people, um, you know, you can, you can find out real quick, um, that it's just not for you. I mean, the thing that I would say to people, um, you know, sure. With any other, like any job, I mean, there's some sort of learning curve, right? You know, the first year you're a teacher, it's usually a disaster. Um, you know, but by year like three, four, you know, if you haven't kind of got the swing of it or if it's not sitting right with you, um, you know, it might not. Um, and, you know, so the, the really the decision making that, that went through my head when I was thinking about, you know, leaving and, and doing something else um, was, 
you know, just looking at, you know, 20, 30 years down the road, right? So, you know, if, if I'm at year eight or nine here and I hate it this much, I mean, it was, it was having a, a seriously negative impact on the rest of my life as well. You know, I was all stressed out and, you know, I hated waking up and going to where I went every day. Um, I, like I would imagine many young people, um, with school, right? And you think of, you know, think about the, the results of that and, and some of the challenges young people have who, who really don't like school. Um, and I was like, you know, sure, there's money, sure, there's benefits, sure, there's, you know, a certain amount of security here. But it was just horrifying to me to look, you know, this is what my life's going to be like for the next 30 years. Mm. Um, and and so for me, you know, it the the trade-off between, you know, sort of the, the material um, benefits of continuing teaching versus, you know, I, w- I would rather have my time um, and I would rather have my time be, you know, meaningful and, um, you know, so there's there's certainly stress that comes along with doing the work and the learning cooperatives, um, but it's like self-chosen and it's for what I feel is like a, a meaningful purpose. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't have the same, for whatever reason, it doesn't have the same effect, uh, on me as, as you know, teaching did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. <laughs> it, it does make sense to me. Uh, what in the book you wrote about visiting some pretty like, uh, underprivileged schools and seeing the inequalities there. And, and you mm-hmm. felt extremely motivated to like help disadvantaged kids. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. I know that for a lot of my friends who are interested in teaching or education, that the, the social justice function of becoming a teacher is a, is a powerful force and mm-hmm. and so where are you on that now? I imagine some people say like, oh, you, you started a learning cooperative and you have to charge us $12,000 and it's in Princeton, New Jersey. So you just gave up on any sort of social justice and you're just working with rich kids. And I'm just trying to make a, a caricature of this, this sure. argument here. Um, and so, yeah, where does that sit with you now? Like the being of service to society and not just a thin sliver of, of society. It's, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll stop talking now. <laughs> well, it's actually thirteen thousand. It's a little bit. Oh, oh, thirteen. Let's not understate the value of a Princeton Learning Cooperative tuition. Yeah, yes. let's not understate it. Um, yeah, I mean the I, I you know come from rural Ohio um, up by Toledo, and and so I didn't uh, you know it's just everybody. There wasn't extreme you know it's like a farming town. Um, you know, lots of corn. So, uh, you know, I, I didn't really, I wasn't really exposed to really vast differences in wealth and, you know, everyone was just kind of at the same level. Um, so when I, when I went down to, to college, uh, in Miami, um, down by Cincinnati, um, I was, uh, you know, there, Miami got a lot of, of kids from like, you know, sort of the Cleveland, Columbus, Chicago suburbs. Um, and so it was really the first time, you know, I, I came into contact with, with people whose families had like really significant, you know, financial um, means. And at the same time, the, the first year I was down there, uh, we had to go um, visit uh uh, a school as part of the ed- teacher education program, and one of the, the places I visited was, you know, um, you know, kind of an urban school down in Cincinnati where like they couldn't afford paper, um, and so you know, it, it, you know, someone who hadn't really experienced that, you know, I was getting, you know, both sides of that inequality, um, and it really um, had an impact on me um, just seeing the the difference, and you know, it was just all new to me, um, and so you know, like. The, the social justice side of it, um, 
you know, it's still important. So, I mean, the thing to know about, you know, Princeton Learning Cooperative and I think all of the centers and liberating learners at this point uh, is, you know, we don't, we don't turn people away for financial um, reasons. Um, you know, so we, uh, you know, I, th I think out of our budget, you know, maybe like a third, more than a third of it uh, goes towards fee reductions. You know, we have people, uh, families who can afford the, the full amount and, you know, that's great. Um, you know, we have people who are, you know, giving us 50 bucks a month. Um, you know, it's just depending, you know, whatever, if we have the ability to, um, to take people on, um, you know, we do, uh, it's not, you know, exclusively, uh, you know, and, and also Princeton, I mean, you know, the name obviously has a lot of cachet with the, with the university, but, you know, there's definitely, um, it's not all rich people that live in Princeton and in the area around there. And we draw from, you know, like a, probably a 20 mile radius around Princeton as well. So we work with all kinds of kids and all kinds of financial backgrounds as well. Okay. And this is something that I've always loved, and I, I try to speak about whenever possible, the, the fact that North Star and the Liberated Learners Centers uh, pretty much accept every motivated applicant who you know, will work with you on, on creating a payment plan. Uh, and I think that's one of the coolest things about the Liberated Learners Centers in comparison to similar alternative schools or democratic free schools where perhaps there, there's not so much leniency in paying the tuition. So congratulations and please keep it up. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and that's, it comes back to somewhat of the, the kind of the business model, if you want to call it that, or the structure of the thing um, is, you know, it's not a school, um, you know, and that's one of the, I think, advantages of doing this kind of thing. Uh, you know, you don't have to buy some huge building. You're not putting out thousands and thousands of dollars for like textbooks or supplies, whatever. It's a very low overhead model. Um, you know, the big thing is just, you know, obviously staffing and, you know, rent and insurance. So, you know, if you can cover that, um, you know, it's, it's not too bad actually. Grace Llewellyn wrote the teenage liberation handbook. You mm -hmm. read that when you were in college. Uh, mm -hmm. You have written the teacher liberation handbook. Is there is there any coincidence, any overlap between those two titles? <laughs> well, I wrote I wrote to Grace before I titled it that and made sure she was okay with that. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, that was that was one of the conceptions. It was it was what what the teenage liberation handbook did for sort of just self directed education uh, for young people. Um, you know, the idea was to to write a book for that would do the same thing for adults and teachers. Um, who wanted to um, be involved in working with kids in that way. And was Grace's book as influential on you as it was uh, on Ken? And, and by the way, our very first interview on this podcast was with Ken Danford about North Star, and he mm -hmm. talks about Grace and the Teenage Liberation Handbook there. But yeah. where did Grace's book play a role in your decision-making process? Did it, did it come back in uh, when you were a teacher? Did you revisit it? Uh, I did. Um, actually, I, I wrote a, a blog post about this. The the metaphor I used was like, uh, you know, like like the uh, you know space people talk about like if there's an asteroid or some massive object coming towards the Earth, um, the idea is you don't like blow it up. You just like all you got to do is like send a probe out there and just like nudge it a little bit when it's like a hundred million miles away or however far it out it is. You just got to like move it an inch, and by the time it gets to the Earth. Like it's completely not a problem. Um, 
that was like for me, uh, Grace's book felt like that that little nudge um, uh, that just set you know my life on this completely different trajectory. So you know when I was uh, a miserable teacher in t- probably 2006 2007, um, you know I had that book from shortly after I got out of college, and I just was reading it one night. And like I said in the um, book, there's like a like a I don't know four sentence description of North Star in there. Um, and I think it was called Pathfinder. North Star used to be called Pathfinders, listed as Pathfinder in the book. And I remember just going, huh, that's kind of interesting. Maybe I should like look that up. And, you know, I went, uh, you know, I found sort of found that they had changed the name to North Star and found them. Um, and that really, you know, changed. So, I mean, I give all sorts of credit to Grace's book. Uh, I, wouldn't have found, I wouldn't have found North Star otherwise, and we wouldn't have done all this stuff. My life would be completely different. Um, and, you know, now I'm fortunate enough, enough to to sort of know Grace in person, and now she's starting a literary learner center. And it's full circle. It's it's full, beautiful. It's huge. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that that teacher who I quoted earlier is Matt, who is one of Grace's first hires at yeah. the Hive in Eugene, Oregon. And I got to go hang out with Grace and run a workshop for her to sort of help build up the audience for the yeah. Hive earlier this year. It was it was great. Uh, awesome. Yes, she's wonderful. Everyone, go read the Teenage Liberation Handbook. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, let's talk about the decision to quit in terms of financial realities. Sure. Uh, you were saying that you got a pretty premium position as far as public school teachers go. Yeah. And... What enabled you to walk away from that financially? Considering that, did you have a kid at that point when you when you quit teaching? Uh, my daughter would have been very very young when we started PLC, mm-hmm. like one one and a half, one something okay, like so, that. So new father, uh, mm-hmm. paying a mortgage on a house, I believe. Yep. And, yes. And you're you're walking away from this position, and so you have your ideals, and you also have financial realities, and so what what enables what enabled you to do that? And what enables other people who start similar centers to do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, so there's, there's some sense that, you know, it's specific, but you know, in some ways it's general, right? So like, um, you know, talk to anyone who started, um, an organization or business or whatever. Um, you know, you gotta have some resources to do it right for the most part. Um, and so, you know, we didn't, uh, when we were starting the, the learning coffers, we didn't have like a huge pot of money. Um, but what the the founders did have, the resources we did have, was the ability to um, to work for a while um, with for little or no pay as you know we grew the organization. It's like any sort of like you know bootstrapped tech startup or something like that, right? Where um, you know you, you're the essential capital. Uh, for for starting the thing is just lack of payment um, at the, at the beginning. So, you know what what allowed us to do that, um, you know, is like you know my wife and I, you know, fortunately didn't have massive amounts of debt. You know, it wasn't hadn't like racked up credit card debt. Um, you know, we had a little bit of money saved up. Um, you know, she had you know she was still a teacher in that same public school system, so was doing all right. There were benefits paid for, so you know there there wasn't really a time um, when I was uh, you know quitting my job uh, where I thought that I was really putting my family into jeopardy, right? Um, and you know, and quitting the job. I mean, it sounds like this big, huge, momentous thing, but like not really. Like Plan B, you know, like if PLC folds after a year and a half. You know, I start subbing in schools, 
get another teaching job, whatever. You know, it might be a little dent in the in the long term trajectory, but um, you know, it wasn't life ending. Um, and so, you know, we had the the ability to do that, fortunately. Um, and then, you know, as we build it up, um, you know, we were, we were able to do that. So, you know, that that's certainly one model. And I would say, you know, the vast majority of the, the liberating learners centers, you know, because we're not, you know, people in the network are not independently wealthy. We don't have huge benefactors. And so a lot of people have done it sort of that kind of bootstrap startup sort of thing. And they've just been for whatever reason, they've been able to, you know, work that with their personal resources. Um, you know, it would be, it would be lovely. Uh, you know, I don't recommend starting it that way necessarily. Like if you know somebody who's got $250,000, who's willing to kick that in for, to support you for a couple of years while, while you build the thing, you know, great. You know, we just, we just didn't want to like, you know, we didn't think banks were going to give us that loan. We didn't, we didn't want to go into debt to do it. Um, you know, so that's just the way we, we chose to do it. But, you know, you could certainly try to get funders to to fund these startups. And that's certain, you know, so, certainly something that Liberty Learners is is looking into is like, you know, maybe there's some larger donors and things like that that would be interested in, in supporting a network, not just an individual center, but, you know, net network of centers. Um, maybe that's more attractive to, to large donors. So... So all those uh, wealthy philanthropists out there listening to this episode, yeah, you know who to contact, joelhammond.com. There you go. <laughs> uh, uh, do you know of, of anyone within your network or anyone who has started in an alternative school who has not had to take a serious pay cut uh, in the process? Anyone who has managed to like make an equal salary to whatever the public school district would be paying. And maybe that's unfair. Maybe I should be saying to, to what a local private school and independent private school would be paying. Yeah. We mean like year one, like day one. Uh, I don't know. What, what's a fair comparison then, you know, three years yeah. after starting it up perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, sure. You know, like we, um, you know, I, I, and just to back up for one second, I think, that, you know, in terms of the alternative education, you know, model and, you know, different centers and schools and things like that, um, you know, that's one of the things I've been really focused on um, is just that, you know, I don't think those those places have a hard time. Right. Uh, it's hard to run one of those and make it financially sustainable. And that's really the, the place where a lot of those, you know, where it falls down. Right. It's not from an educational standpoint, like those, it works, right? It's, it's usually from the business side of it. It's usually from the money side of it. Um, and so we wanted to, you know, what we're really trying to do here is, is try to pioneer and, and figure out a model um, that can be, you know, financially sustainable um, for the, for the people who are involved um, and, and so on. So, so, you know, like, you know, like Princeton Learning Cooperative and, and the um, other learning cooperatives, you know, I mean, that's where we're working on. So like within, I don't know, like three or four years of PLC, you know, we were making salaries that was, you know, comparable to, I'd say, you know, like, like you said, the private schools in the area. Um, and, you know, I, we feel pretty good about that. Um, and, you know, it's not, like I said, it's not what I'd be making in public school, but I, I gladly take it. Um, and, you know, have a better experience in my life just in terms of how I spend my time. Yep. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, why are all the liberated learner centers on the East coast, Joel? Like, <laughs> why are they in the Northeast? Is this some sort of history of, you know, utopian 
alternative schools in Massachusetts? <laughs> Why are there almost none on the West Coast? Riddle me this. I don't know. That's your job. You got to figure that out. Um, <laughs> My job. You're the co-founder of Liberated <laughs> Learners. I'm looking for an answer here. Well, I've never been. Well, I guess I was in Utah one time. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's okay. I don't, get, I don't make it to the West Coast very often. Um, okay. So, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe it's just a time function, right? You play this out for 50 years and there'll be so many on the West Coast that'll be, you know, won't be an issue. I don't, I don't know why it started on the East Coast. Um, I don't know, just proximity maybe. Um, but there's, you know, Grace is starting one up. Uh, yeah, hopefully there'll be some more. <laughs> okay. 50 years, 50 years. That's the answer. I'm sure they'll be there in 50 years. Uh, I mean, it's, I, it seems to me it'd be ripe, right? Like just, exactly. Uh, That's why I'm asking the question. It's, it's like all these other startups happen out there and, and not just tech startups, but yeah, uh, there are a lot of alternative schools that are a little bit more focused on like measurements and metrics and mm -hmm. they are more tech influenced and, and there's a culture of that out there, but yeah, but why there haven't been things like North Star, uh, I'm not sure. I don't know. I really don't know. I, I'm trying to plant little ideas, little seeds among the movers yeah. and shakers in we'll just, California. Let's we'll just start making, you know, start making introductions for us. Well, we're happy to talk to people. Okay, I, I've already <laughs> started, but uh, I okay, work harder. Um, okay, you mentioned earlier that starting Princeton Learning Cooperative was this whole education sort of in, in entrepreneurship and and, mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot that you had to figure out along the way. Yeah. So for someone who is currently teaching but is thinking about jumping ship and starting some sort of small private alternative school, do you have any advice in terms of like what skills you can start building now? What kind of work you can put in now before you get to the re really critical phase. Uh, you can be more prepared to do this kind of thing. Uh, what do you wish that you knew before you started PLC? <laughs> well, uh, almost everything. I mean, there, there's some um, uh, there's some sense it's like uh, you can do all the learning you want to, all the academic and sort of like theoretical learning you want to, um, but you don't really ever know until you actually get in there and do it. Right. Um, so, you know, there's things that I've learned that I found really important, um, you know, for for successfully running, you know, say PLC, um, that if you would have told me those things when I was first coming out of teaching, I've been like, yeah, yeah. But I would probably wouldn't have seen the importance of it because I didn't I didn't really know the relevance. Right. Um, so, you know, the things that um, the, the things that I have found most useful, I'm trying to think back to myself, uh, you know, 10 years ago, um, you know, I think, uh, what was useful for me, uh, is cause I had never, I had zero exposure to anything about running an organization. Right. Um, I didn't, I never looked at a budget. I didn't know what a budget was. Um, had no idea, you know, like I sort of heard of like nonprofits, but it had nothing, knew nothing about how to run one or like what the legalities of it were. Um, you know, knew nothing about your know, marketing or outreach or, you know, any, anything. Um, and so, you know, what, some of the things that I did uh, in preparation for that is, um, you know, I started volunteering on uh, a local nonprofit. It was actually like an organic farm with like some educational programs um, attached to it. And, you know, so I started volunteering there and then they eventually asked me to be on the board. Um, so, you know, I did that for a couple years before we started PLC. So, you know, I got to see um, how organizations functioned. I saw, you know, how budgets are created. Um, 
how challenging it is to get everyone on the same page to do some something. Um, you know, I started looking at, um, you know, evaluating programs on a financial basis, whether this works or not, you know, strategic planning, all this, this stuff. But I had, it wasn't like theoretical. It wasn't like I read the book on how to manage a nonprofit. And that would, you know, it was, it was learning that stuff in, in relationship to, to a real situation that I was involved in. Um, and so I, you know, I think there's some, there's some of that stuff that you could do. I mean, you know, you could certainly be working full time as a teacher and just start getting involved in organizations and learning from people uh, who do it. Um, uh, you know, that's that's just the way I learn best, I guess. Um, no, that's that's super helpful advice. Yeah, I also have almost no knowledge about how nonprofits and other organizations with boards work. And yeah. Uh, yeah, just getting involved with one or being part of some sort of board, even if it's a small organic farm or or some other small uh, organization. Uh, yeah, that's great advice. And and you might, I mean, and you might find just like things not to do, right? It might not be like the the best example of yeah, like you can do see it this dysfunction way. and say let's just not do that ever. Yeah, just like cautionary tales. <laughs> the staff at Princeton Learning Cooperative are a lot of them other former school teachers? At one point, um, you know, six of us were like, you know, like full-time, long-term teachers um, who left. Um, and then Allison, who's um, on the, the board of Liberty Learners as well, um, she was trained as a teacher, but then um, ended up uh, doing uh, uh, educational statistics for ETS, Educational Testing Service in Princeton, um, before homeschooling her boys. Um, and then she joined the staff pretty much as her her kids were sort of finishing high school as homeschoolers. Um, so we were able to snag her. And thank God, because we didn't know anything about what we were doing. <laughs> so she brought a lot of experience. Just like, oh, how do you learn if you're not in school? Um sort of the resources and, you know, approaches and stuff like that. So that was, uh -huh. that was really great. So what is it that former teachers sometimes struggle with when they are getting into the, this different mindset, this learning cooperative mindset, consent-based uh, education, kids don't have to show up to your classes? Um, <laughs> what are the common struggles for people who, you know, who want to be teachers? They don't want to teach in the regular system. So they find something like your organization and then – what yeah yeah it's uh I, I actually you know um you know people talk about like sort of de-schooling or, or whatever in the unschooling movement um I, I kind of felt like i had to go through that as a teacher um you know working with young people i remember very distinctly one of the first year you know first year i was on staff at, at plc um you know sitting there one day everyone you know like kids are like on their computers playing games Nothing's really happening, <laughs> like from an education, you know, like from a, a school perspective. You know, there was no learning, quote unquote, learning going on. Um, and just going, what, what have I got myself into? Is this really, <laughs> is this really uh, helpful to young people? Aren't, aren't I supposed to be like imparting knowledge in some way? <laughs> you know, like there's, you know, I think there's, um, you know, and, and I grew up, you know, in the traditional model. And so there was a lot of sort of basic assumptions um, that I came with what, you know, learning was supposed to look like, um, that, you know, I had to, had to sort of dispense with. Um, 
And just like simple things like this, you know, like if you go into the common room at, at PLC on any given day, there's a bunch of people sitting around chatting, playing ping pong on their computers, doing whatever. And, uh, you know, from a, from a school teacher perspective, you know, you look at that and go, what a waste of time. These kids are you know, not learning anything. Um, but like from a, from a sort of life perspective and just sort of a learning perspective in that way, like, you know, I, I got to tell you, I think that like learning how to make friends and have decent relationships with people is probably a more important skill uh, down the road than like, you know, quadratic formulas. I don't know. Uh, you know, and not downplaying the importance of math in some some paths. Um, but like, I don't I don't, you know, at this point, you know, I don't really prioritize, um, you know, abstract academic knowledge over you know, kid learning how to play guitar um, or a kid, you know, um, who for the first time in their life is, is making friends or, you know, whatever you're having positive relationships with their peers around them. You know, all of that stuff is, is, you know, to me just as important as, you know, coming in and listening to me ramble on about, you know, civil war or something, you know, I don't know. Do, do you do that? Do you ramble on about the civil war and other historical all, topics all the time well not, not all the time I, for one hour a week <laughs> like, okay what's the class called u.s history oh, and innovative it's not that, that's the point like it's totally uh. non-innovative right like and that's the other thing that I, I sort of got away from um is you know like when you're a teacher and i think it's because you're, you have to like put on a circus show there's all these kids who don't want to be there and you got to like, yep, da, 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 da. you got to like get their attention somehow, right? And so you got to have all these like super innovative things and these like simulations and games and you know this, that, and the other. And you know, like when when the kids don't have to be there, um, they're actually the only reason that they're in my U.S. history class is because they've voluntarily walked in there, right? Um, it, it doesn't particularly matter the method for the most part, right? Um, I, I just kind of go in there and I kind of ramble on about stuff. We have discussions and whatever. Um, and I, constantly I'm like, are you, you guys sure this is interesting to you? Because it <laughs> seems really boring to me. And they're like, no, 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 this is great. Um, but, you know, if it didn't work for them, they don't, they don't have to stay there. They're not a captive audience. You know, if, if they would rather learn about U.S. history from, you know, going and volunteering at the, the Princeton Battlefield, you know, Historical Society, Go do that. You know, you want to, uh, you know, read read a stack of you know, books that you picked out on your own about the U.S. Civil War, and you don't want to listen to me talk about it. Great. You know, so I, I don't have to have ownership of that, right? Like, I, you know, I'll help you. Yeah, you'd rather like read a stack of books. I'll help you find books if you want my help um, to read. But I'm just not, I'm just not going to be, you know, forcing you to do that. So, how many kids show up to your U.S. history class once a week on average, and what are their ages? Uh, well, it's actually one, that's one of the bigger classes that happens at PLC. So you know, we might have you know anywhere between around thirty kids usually um, at PLC, and so you know, like twelve of them hey. uh, would show hey. up. Like forty percent of this hey. body. I know. And sometimes I, I also teach a current events class. Sometimes it's even more than that. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's. Um, you know, it's a good chunk. And uh, what was the other part of that question? How old are they? Oh, yeah. So it's, uh, you know, we work with kids 
uh, you know, tw- you know, 12 is about the youngest up to like 18 or 19. Um, and it would be that whole range. Um, you know, we'd have 12 years old, 12 year olds in there. We have 18 year olds. Um, and the other thing I'll say is, you know, I think a lot of people think library learners works just with teenagers. Um, that's not the case. It's just most of the centers who've started just happen to, um, you know, we do have centers that there's nothing philosophically that this only works with, with older kids. We have centers that work with kids all the way down to five. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, are there ever moments when this, I'm not, I'm going to say students, the students in your U S history class do mm-hmm. not display the sort of etiquette or good graces that a more traditionally schooled student might have been trained to display and does that ever get under your skin uh you mean like just like staring at their phone the whole hour yeah or just like getting <laughs> up and walking out in the middle of you talking uh it's something that your yourself as a teacher you know you can't help but feel annoyed by uh i mean i don't people getting up and leaving and i don't care um i mean there's there's some and it's not like school etiquette but you know, like one of the things we, you know, I'll talk to people about, especially because we have like a lot of volunteers that come in um, to work with kids. And it's it's more just like a personal etiquette sort of thing. Like if, like anything, like if you invite your friend to coffee and then you just stare at your phone the whole time, like, I don't know, it's not so great. Um, you know, so, you know, we might, I might just mention, you know, like if the whole class has their phones out. It's like, well, why we don't need to be here <laughs> to like look at your phones? Like you could go out there, um, and but it's not like you know, like this shaming, like you're doing something horrific. It's just like I don't know if you're gonna voluntarily show up for class, you maybe get something out of it. I don't know. Might want to put your phone away. Um, so yeah, there's not too much. You know, I mean, if somebody's again, I think it's the nice thing. It's not a captive audience. I think that's where a lot of the the problems um, that teachers have to deal with in school come from like, you know, you don't want to be here and you're going to act out and do all this crazy stuff. Like fine, like go for a hike. I don't care. They <laughs> Just, probably won't show up to your class in the first place. They probably won't show up in the first place. And if they do, I mean, you, maybe it's like, Hey, you know, guys, can you just hold on a second? You know, uh, if they're like getting out of control um, and like in negative in- impacting the rest of the people in the class, maybe they might not realize that. Um, but yeah, I mean, just, like, yeah, you can't sit still. Fine. Like, go go outside, walk around for a little while, come back when you're ready. Like, it's it's just not um, – people just have autonomy to take care of themselves and what their needs are, right? You need to go to the bathroom, go to the bathroom. You're hungry, have a snack. Yeah, you, you know, need like a snack. I was about to say, how many problems in school could be solved by, like, saying, <laughs> go eat a snack? Yeah. Go, yeah, take a nap. Like, to get, Go get, take a nap and come back, and then you can focus again. All sorts of problems yeah. <laughs> is the answer. So these volunteers, are these, uh, do you have Princeton University students who are volunteers? Yes. I mean, this is, um, this is really the only way that these Liberated Learner Centers um, can work. I mean, I, I'll speak specifically for PLC, but um, you know, we have, let's say we have 30 kids. We'll have, we'll have three full-time staff members, right? Um, and then we have something like, I think this past year we had like 35 volunteers, who come through on a weekly basis, right? Wow. Um, 
And so some of, uh, you know, I think we do have a, a work study relationship with Princeton University. So, um, so they can get, you know, work study money. We hire them as an off-campus employer. Um, and then they, you know, a lot of times they'll do like tutoring with kids, like, you know, work one-on-one with kids in math or writing. Um, but sometimes they lead classes. Like we had a, a, a girl this year, uh, who's, um, grew up in a, a, her mom was deaf. And so she learned American Sign Language. So she led an American Sign Language class for a handful of kids at, at PLC. Um, so, you know, we'll get a handful of, of, you know, Princeton University students each year. But then, you know, it's like, like 30 adults from the community just come in and either work with kids one-on-one or lead small classes or, you know, it's, it's really amazing. And a lot of people, when they're starting these centers are like kind of, unsure about that like really can we really ask people to like volunteer and like come in and work with kids and you know our experience is like um you know people love it right like there's lots of volunteers that we talk to who are like you know coming in here for an hour a week and working with a handful of kids who are really interested in what i can offer is like the best hour of my week you know it's they they look forward to it they love it it's meaningful to them um, to give back to, to young people in that way. And there's not, uh, you know, a lot of opportunities for people to do that, really, to have, mm-hmm. you know, not access to young people, but, you know, just sort of, you know, be in a relationship with, with young people um, where they can share some of their knowledge and skills. Um, and so it's really just, you know, it's a lovely arrangement, to be honest. And, uh, you, know, uh, in, you know, particularly in Princeton, there's a ton of really amazing people live in that area um, and, and who can give other time. But we found that also, you know, at our other centers, not in Princeton, you know, we have tons of, they just come out of the woodwork, right? You know, like we just kind of put it out in the universe, like, ah, we need, uh, we have some kids who are interested in learning Japanese. And then like, you know, like a native born Japanese speaker shows up and comes in for an hour a week and does Japanese with the kids. Mm-hmm. And do you ever have challenges with, with volunteers bringing in, school-like attitudes or, or methods of, of discipline and organization that, that you as an organizer have to gently, you know, coax them into letting go of? Uh, we generally are pretty hands-off about that, right? Um, you know, because, like, volunteers have to, to feel like their time is valuable and, you know, they're getting out of it what they want to as well. What what usually, it's, pretty, uh, it's a pretty self-policing community, right? So if a volunteer comes in and really sucks or just doesn't get it and it's not, it's not useful for the kids. They just vote with their feet. They just, yeah, no one shows up to any mentorship meetings, to any classes. They they are just ignored and shunned. That's a pretty clear message, I bet. Yeah. And, you know, and it's, and we try to, you know, cause we, we really, really appreciate our volunteers. I mean, they're amazing, right? We couldn't run the program without them. Um, and so, you know, if, if there's a volunteer that doesn't work out or the kids aren't particularly interested, and sometimes we have volunteers who, like, one year have, like, 10 kids that come to their class and they love it, but then it's just, like, the different mix of kids the next year, no one's particularly interested. So, you know, we always are, you know, we spend a lot of time developing re- relationships with our, our volunteers and um, you know, we have happy hours for them and, you know, we, we do all sorts of things to make them feel like they're, they're really, which they are, they're really part of the, um, sort of the staff of the, of the center. Um, but if it's, if it's really not working out, um, often the kids will, you know, let their mentor, their full-time, you know, the, the core staff members know like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to go to this class. And if like a number of people are doing that, we'll find some, some really nice way to, you know, thank them for their time and, you know, just, uh, you know, we'll, keep you on the list if, if anyone else comes up that might be interested. It, it sounds like a really 
great part of your job at Princeton Learning Cooperative. You get to bring people from the community in to share their diversity of skills or interests. And I imagine they're cycling through on a on a regular basis. And so you're meeting new people. You are getting exposed as an adult to all these new subjects. Um, if you get bored teaching your own class, you don't mm-hmm. have to keep teaching it, you know, unless you're going to break the hearts of, of 12 right. teenagers. Uh, right. But you can offer new classes based upon your changing and shifting interests and priorities. Also, yeah. it seems like it really contributes to to your job satisfaction. Am, am I on base here? Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the only reason I lead any of the classes I do is because I want to and people are interested, right? Um, it's not like I just get an assignment from the department chair that you, know, you have to teach this class, right? Um, so it's, it's really based on just our interests and whatever. And, you know, to the point of um, going out and reaching out to people, like we have a started a class last year it's just called career explorations and it's basically just, it's an excuse for us to write to people. So like, um, we just write to any, we have a handful of kids who are committed to like having lunch, uh, on one day a week. And we just write to any interesting people we find in the community, um, and say, Hey, would you be willing to come in for an hour and have lunch with a a group of kids and just talk about your career and what you're interested in and how you got there? And we have like a hundred percent success rate. Doesn't matter who we wrote to. Wow, we just that's we, awesome. We just write to whoever. Like I, I read in the in one of the local newspapers, it was like this guy who's like uh, like a venture capitalist. He's like the I don't know, like the fifth richest person in New Jersey. We just wrote to him. We're like, hey, would you be willing to come and talk to some kids about like biotech investing? He's like, sure. He just comes in. You know, for like four or five kids. And because, you know, I think maybe Grace says this in her book or something like that, like the world is wide open to young people who are interested, you know, in like learning about stuff. Like what person is going to like shoot shoot down like a 15-year-old who writes to them and is interested in what they're doing? Very few. They might be too busy, but yeah, I'm sure the the interest and the flattery is, is definitely there. Yeah, um, it's 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 like a gold, you know, like a whole the whole world is just like a gold mine waiting to be <laughs> discovered. You know, is there any other way that you can think of that your current position really dramatically differs from your life as a, a public school or private school teacher, just in terms of your day to day mental health and happiness and and maybe the you know the work you get to do. What has made the biggest difference? What's what's black and white? Um, well, just uh, you know, I can I can probably count on my fingers and toes the number of days in the last eight or nine years where I got up really dreading what I was going to do that day. Right? Um, it was like every day when I was teaching, um, and you know, I, I I can't you know the I cannot overstate. Uh, that difference, right? And it's it's mirrored uh, by sometimes the situations that young people who come to PLC, you know, they every, their daily existence every day is just terrible in school. And then all of a sudden, you know, they have this other way of doing things. And it's like a huge load just sort of being taken off their back, right? Um, and it's sometimes a, a really dramatic effect for the young people. And it's been a really dramatic effect for, for me. Um, so I don't know, you know, positive outlook on life, 
<laughs> have, happy, happy with how you spend your time. Uh, uh, lack of you, cynicism and, and general anxiety, perhaps. Yeah, like all of all of that. Um, and you know, just you know, having relationships with with people that I want to. And it, I don't know. It's there's. I don't think other than you know maybe a little bit of money. I don't really think of anything that's you know not better. So hold up, Joel. Are you telling sure. me that if I am a disaffected teacher, that I can quit my job, I can start something kind of like the Liberated Learners Center, and within a few years, I'll have a, a decent chance of earning the same amount of money that I might earn not at a public school, but uh, at a private school. And I can have much higher job satisfaction. I can have nice, respectful, consent-based relationships with the kids who I work with. I can teach stuff that I'm interested in. And the only kids who will show up to my classes uh, are probably going to be really interested in what I'm teaching. And additionally, I can have all these relationships and, and mentoring opportunities outside of the classes because classes are really not the main thing that happen at these centers. Are you telling me that I can have it all? Is that what you're, you're saying? <laughs> Uh, I would say most of that. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's not, a, but I mean, so that's the thing they like, particularly, and I don't want to, I don't want to sugarcoat this. Right. So I, I'm usually like, Ken, we do the good cop, bad cop routine when we're talking to, to new people. Ken's a really inspirational, like, you know, yes, you can do this and work with kids in this way. And it's, you know, whatever. I usually come in and I talk about the money part of it. <laughs> so it's hard. It's incredibly hard to to run one of these centers successfully financially right there's there uh, there's no there's no other way to put it there are you know there are liberating learner centers that we've worked with that have opened and closed because they could not make it financially right there's zero sugar coating that should go on about that right um it's challenging um but you know if if you can make it work if you have uh, if you can build the team that that can make these things run successfully, um, yeah, I mean it's uh, life changing, um, and you know, and that's that's really you know what we're trying to do with Liberated Learners is like make it much more likely, you know, like don't make our mistakes. Like, you know, I, I've never advised people to start a center the way we started Princeton Learning Cooperative. It was ridiculous. <laughs> we, got, you know, in some ways, I feel like we got lucky, um, but you know, we've had a number of years of experience now working with a lot of people, and it's like, you know, I think we've learned something about what it takes to run these things successfully, and, and sharing that with people so that they can like cut years off the learning curve um, is really what it's all about. Um, so yeah, I mean. Is that qualified enough of an answer? Is it, I, mean, I think yes. it is. I, I, I think you you stripped the sugar off of my, my highly optimistic summary statement there. But when is the next Liberated Learners, what's it called, a replication conference? Uh, well, that was what they used to be called. Um, oh, okay. I'm, yeah, I'm out so, of date. Yeah, so we had, uh, the way we do the conferences now is just for people who are running centers. Um, so we actually just had that in June. So it's like, you know, members of Liberated Learners. Um, what we've been doing with new folks who are interested in the model and maybe want to do this, um, we started to uh, kind of have a different sort of path for that. So first thing is just, you know, talk to, talk to Ken on the phone, you know, ask questions. He'll tell you all about it. Um, and then we have uh, a series of webinars um, where Ken and I, 
Ken and I just get on like a Google Hangout or Google Meet or whatever they changed the name to. Um, and just, you know, kind of, he goes over the philosophical parts of, you know, the centers. And I talk about the business side of it. We answer a bunch of questions, um, that kind of thing. And then we have, um, you know, if, if people are still interested and they want to, you know, get our help, um, you know, thinking through the planning stages of this, then we, you know, you know, have consulting agreements with, with people. Actually, I just, um, we have somebody in Ontario who's just going to be our, our next group that's, that's starting. Um, I'm going to be starting to work with them this summer. So, yeah, so there's kind of a, um, we kind of broke it up. So there's, you can take little steps along the way to find out if this is really what you want to do before you quit your job. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking on liberatedlearners.net on, and I'm looking at how much that your fees are to, to take each of these steps and they're incredibly reasonable. Uh, this is not some sort of, you know, package that you're trying to sell for some big amount of money, but most people won't actually implement it. Like it's, it's obvious that you and Ken uh, want to make this as accessible to possible and, and, you know, inform people progressively so that each time you go to this next level, you know, that it's, it's most likely the right step for you. Um, yeah. So that's the idea. Yeah, yeah. It, it, this does not feel like you're you're trying to sell anyone some sort of package deal. Um, that's that's wonderful. Uh, yeah. w- for people who are interested in in this kind of stuff in general, uh, mm-hmm. the the ex teachers, uh, people like me who never even went into teaching because we drank the Kool Aid too soon. Um, <laughs> it, there's liberated learners. There's also ALCs, Agile yep. Learning Centers, and they mm-hmm. do their own facilitator trainings. Um, there are Sudbury schools, and there's a whole network of Sudbury schools, and, and I'm not exactly sure what the state of Sudbury school training is at mm-hmm. this moment. Um, are there any other options out there that people should know about beyond the ones we just mentioned? Um, I mean, those are the big ones that I know of. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you go. Liberated <laughs> Learners, ALCs, and Sudbury schools. Uh, yeah. all, they're all some iteration of uh, something that looks like a, a democratic free school or a free school, or I know you guys don't call yourself schools. Uh, right. you, you are learning centers. Mm-hmm. You are closed on Wednesdays just to prove that you are not a five-day-a-week school. There you go. <laughs> go make a life for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Don't come here on Wednesdays. Do your own thing. That's, that's right. Great. Uh, Joel, thank you so much for being on the, the show and there's a TEDx talk that people should watch. Uh, there's Liberated Learners. There's your book, which is available on Amazon or I imagine other places too. Mm-hmm. And, no, actually just Amazon. Just, <laughs> never mind, just Amazon. Total dedication. Yeah. Uh, is there any way else that those who want more Joel Hammond in their life can get it? Uh, it's probably a small group of people. Um, <laughs> We're trying to expand the envelope here, Joel. Uh, yeah, I'm generally responsive to email. Uh so you can get in touch with me. I'll, I'll try to write back. Um, yeah, I mean, those are, those are the big ways. Um, and also, before we break, Blake, I just want to say how appreciative I am of all the work that you've been doing over the years. Um, it's really, uh, really awesome. And a lot of, you know, PLC kids have been at the camps, been on trips with you, um, and routinely come back and sing your praises. So thank you very much for the work you're putting out into the world. Aww, thank you, Joel. Yeah. All right. Warm fuzzies. We'll cut it there. (laughs) Thanks, Joel. Yep. Thank you.